0: You are listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. World
1: Talk Radio. Welcome to the Sharon Klein Hour. Life, the power of water, global warming, and your health. I am Sharon Kleiner. I want you to embrace your life, be vain, learn more about yourself and your health. Have you heard about global warming, climate changes? Do you have any concerns for your health? Because your health could be changing also living on this earth with climate changing. I bet you are confused and your health has to be confused. And the show is about each week for you to learn more about what is happening on this earth planet your health and the better education that you can receive. I want you to learn to take better responsibility of you wanting to learn more about your health. And when Time magazine said this last year, you are the person of the year, that's what they meant. It's what it meant. You are that important. You are the ecosystem. You are important to the and to every person. You need to understand that when you're living on the earth, how powerful the water is and the air. Air must have moisture there for you to be healthy. So as you're living on this earth with air and health, you must learn more about your life and what you need to know about what you could do to be healthier and uh, better education. This is what our show is about and today we have Dr. Marguerite McDonald. She is a cornea refractive surgeon, and has been her life has been dependent on, on helping all people learn more about the health of their eyes, and her dedication, and I believe her mission, as she's getting better at learning, she has also been uh, a creator of one of the first eye surgeries, and you'll learn more about that today. Are you there with us, Marguerite? I am.
2: Welcome to the show. Thank you.
1: Yeah. I wanted our guest to know that Dr. McDonald is a Cornea Refractive Interior Segment Specialist and she is probably one of the few people in the world that has been doing many of the things she started doing long ago and Marguerite, would you tell people a little bit about your background because whenever we have someone on the show the first time, we let our listeners get to know who they are and why you decided to become a refractive eye surgeon.
2: Well, thank you. Um, I was um, uh, visually impaired as a child, and an ophthalmologist took care of me. And when I was five years old, I saw my mom's face for the first time and looked around and saw the world for the first time, and I decided I had to be an ophthalmologist and help other people. So um, I've been particularly interested all my life in refractive surgery, which is surgery to decrease or eliminate the need for glasses or contact lenses. Hmm. And um, I was involved as a uh, radial keratotomy surgeon in the famous PERC study, Perspective Evaluation of Radial Keratotomy, uh, in the 80s. And I have the honor of um, having done the very first eczema laser surgery in the world in Hmm. 1987 in New Orleans. So it's the 20-year anniversary of the first laser surgery in the world to get rid of glasses.
1: Congratulations.
2: Now, I want to ask you... Uh, so our listeners will know. And
1: Dr. McDonald, when you were young, what uh, I what hap- What was wrong with your
2: eyes? Um, I had um, extremely high myopia, extreme nearsightedness. Uh, oh, okay. to, when when ophthalmologists sit around and talk about their glasses, their own glasses prescription, and I mention mine, everybody sits in stunned silence. <laughs> Because uh, I'm exceedingly nearsighted, and I um, didn't realize that other people could see better. I crossed to the street listening for cars. I was five years old uh, before it was discovered, and I would, you know, I could never see all of my mother's face at once. I was so nearsighted. I could get up close and see her eye or her nose, but not her whole face. I'm glad I got got my
1: glasses. (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad we brought this up because this is something uh, as we're going into the program today with education is. The concerns of our youth and our infants being uh, parents don't recognize that. Now, did your parents recognize it? Very? uh, How did they find out about it?
2: Well, (laughs) um, my dad was an orthopedic surgeon. My mother was a fashion model. They're educated people, but they didn't realize how badly off I was. I compensated Uh very well, and then one day they brought me to um, a new part of town with a new shopping mall and there was a beautiful reflecting pool outside. It was about two acres. It was a huge pool and I didn't see it and I ran right into it because it was covered oh. with kind of a green scum and it matched the color of the grass and I ran right in and I um, my legs were tangled under some lumber at the bottom of the, the pond oh. and um, i was drowning and a 12 year old dragged joe jumped in dragged oh. me out and did cpr and my mother came out of the one of the shops and she said why did you run into that lake and i said mom oh. i couldn't see it and they brought me oh. a, a, an hour later i i was in a doctor's office
1: okay now let's go forward on your dedication and your mission in life i wanted to bring up today to the audience, what is the most important organ of your body? It's got to be the eyes. And Dr. McDonald, um, with what I've been in time now, about five years in research with it, I have noticed very little education about your eyes and how to take care of them. Is that? Do you think I'm right?
2: You are absolutely right, Sharon. As a matter of fact, the American Academy of Ophthalmology has just started what they call the iSmart campaign. Okay. They they did some uh, studies. They randomly selected 1,200 Americans across the United States. They did phone interviews and discovered that Americans know shockingly little about their eyes, about how to maintain good vision. They found that, you know, most people know a little bit now about heart disease and colon cancer and breast cancer, and they know what their risk factors are, and they know when they should be screened, but they know nothing about their eyes. So the American Academy of Ophthalmology has just released a new guideline, which is, even if you have perfect distance vision without glasses, even if you have no family history of eye problems, everyone should see an IMD, an ophthalmologist, to get a full dilated eye exam at age 40. Mm-hmm. No. Obviously. Now, what about?
1: Let's go back for uh, backwards a little bit. Um, in fact, I'm glad this came up today because when I got into this research, because my field is educating people about their health and and uh, what they can do about it, and that's been my world almost all of my adult life. Now, you've mentioned something that I noticed, Marguerite, several years ago when I was brought in to do some research on the tear film, and I was so shocked that the school systems and parents don't walk away from the, uh, brand new, with a brand-new baby with anything to do about education and concerns of health, about the eyes. And you can't blame the parents. It, we all have, go buy certain educational uh, materials that are available. What about a baby born? What, what does a parent do? Uh, when should they start thinking about some of the uh, watching for the eyes and the symptoms or better health?
2: Well, some of the very best hospitals, Give the infants, the newborn infants, a complete eye exam by a pediatric ophthalmologist before they go home. Sometimes the parents don't even know what happened. So they should say, by the way, did my baby get an eye exam? And if not, that's okay, not every hospital does it, it's not a requirement. But if not, then as soon as the baby and the mom both feel well, they should go for a screening eye exam. One out of every 250 live births results in a child with a cataract. If that cataract is not detected, removed, and treated quickly, if that cataract, say, is diagnosed when they're 20 or even 12 and removed later, the eye has stopped communicating with the brain, and that eye is a functionally blind eye. It's called a lazy eye or amblyopia. So, you know, many children are born with glaucoma. Yes. Uh, now, there are many, many diseases something. that an infant can have, and that needs uh, to be done right away within the first month or two of birth. Now, you just said something
1: fascinating, and I know this is not going to be the last show we're going to do because I can see the education coming forward. It's just so unbelievably vital. You just said something about the organ of the eye communicating with the brain. Yes. Explain a, that to our audience.
2: As a matter of fact the retina of the eye which is sort of like the film in the camera you know cameras are actually designed to be like the human eye and the film in the camera of the eye is the retina it's actually part of the brain mm-hmm. so part of the brain uh... comes down through the optic nerve and is in the back of our eyes and um, you know this is a pathway a precious pathway along the optic nerve in both directions information going to and from the eye to the brain And that pathway develops immediately after birth. But if there's something in the matter such that one of the two eyes is out of focus, then the brain will ignore that eye and get all its information from the other eye. So there are only a few precious weeks and months to really make uh, a diagnosis and get a complete recovery from a debilitating childhood eye disease. It can be helped a lot if it's caught later when they're one-year-old or two-years-old or three-years-old, but there's nothing like catching it when the child is in their infancy. Then you've got the best chance with this plastic system to mold it into a fully functional eye.
1: Uh-huh. Now, this is important because I know uh, listeners don't think that way because of, of the lack of education we both have mentioned today. No. Now, let's say uh, the, I, I've been de- describing to our listeners for quite some time on each show that the moment you were born, you left your mother's water bag and you entered in the air, you breathed with no water around you, that all of a sudden the air sucks you like a, a suction cup. You've lost the moisture. You're beginning life to the day you dehydrate it to pass on. But the eyelid opens in that delivery room, and the eye is open to the rest of the world because when the eyelid is open, there's no skin over the eye. Are they finding out anything about children living in this world with the dryness and the indoor conditions of forced air heating and cooling and insulated windows and walls and all those chemistry indoors? Is the baby's eyes by chance being checked to be dry uh, when they're that young or do they usually wait for the complaint
2: of the symptoms? Usually they, uh, when, they when they get a, an eye exam in infancy, um, it's hard to put the baby uh, into what we call a slit lamp where you put your chin on the rest and the doctor looks with a um, high magnification system. Um, So basically, you get a quick look with a a sort of a handheld magnifier. Most infants do not suffer from dry eyes, even though the environment gets ever more challenging all the time with the forced air, as you said. Some babies, though, a lot of babies are on a lot of medicines. If they have childhood asthma uh, or a host of other diseases, if they get put on cough medicine, most of the things that babies get put on during their first two, three, four years of life are very drying they cure the problem, but the side effect is dryness, so even, even children can complain occasionally and suffer from dry eyes, though, of course, the incidence is huge in adults. There are over 40 million Americans suffering from clinically significant dry eyes right now. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, let's move on. We've learned a lot about our children and coming forward. Let's say we have a young person, uh, in high sc- coming into school and they're complaining about their eyes. Um, what is your recommendations, uh, for ind- individuals to go to a doctor and, uh, with the parents? If the, if the young person finds out they have an eye problem and the parents keep ignoring it, uh, what, do, could they go to one of the staff at, at, the, at the school and find out if there's a way to have their eyes checked at school just in case? Well, you know most... a lot of times parents are so busy you can't get them to the doctor for the examination and they keep putting it off.
2: well as a matter of fact, Sharon, most good schools uh, have an annual eye exam at least once a year. the children are lined up and they have to cover one eye at a time and look at the Snell and acuity chart, you know the big E you know twenty feet away, and even if it's not totally ideal and even if the uh... lighting uh, isn't perfect and even if m- maybe the uh... this melon chart is a little dirty and dusty and the contrast yeah. isn't perfect it does catch children who have bad vision And I think there are a couple of states that actually have mandated that everyone in grade school and high school has to have an annual eye exam by the teacher, at least. So that that screens out the children that have a bad problem. Now, that doesn't, of course, pick up children who have itchy eyes or who have dry eyes, but at least it picks up children who have poor vision. Um, But, I, you know... The the minimum requirement of a dilated exam by an IMD at age 40 is a bare minimum. Anybody who complains, anybody who says, I can't see or my eyes are uncomfortable should be seen by an IMD no matter how old they are. Now, you know
1: what I'm going to lead to now, Dr. McDonald, is our children today, and the reason I'm I'm not going to go into a lot of the surgery type of techniques today and LASIK, and I want to learn more about health education for these listeners I'm going to come forward now to our children starting out on a computer. Young, what are your concerns about that?
2: The the computers today are safe in that they don't give off radiation or anything like that. However, when someone concentrates on a computer, their average blink rate of twenty times a minute goes down to three times a minute. So even a healthy teenage boy, you know, who's you know, on no medication except maybe a multivitamin, perfect distance vision, even a a healthy teenager will have a situational dry eye if they use a computer a great deal.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, uh, uh, have you noticed, and I've had Dr. Robert Lencani on here recently. In fact, he was a guest recently, and he mentioned that he gets uh, at least once a week, if not more a week, individuals worried about disability in their eyes and the computers. Do you ever run into that at all?
2: Oh, all the time. All the time. Uh, you know, the computers uh, are giving people two things, uh, carpal tunnel syndrome uh, from sitting with their hands in that one slightly uh, back-tilted position, their wrists tilted back slightly for hours on end, and dry eyes. Yes, I see that all the time, too.
1: Uh-huh. And have you noticed that uh, the drowsiness and the, uh, not just the typical burning, itching and all, but the drowsiness and the blurring? And
2: uh, Yes, uh, the blurring. There's a a tiny bit of mild itching. People feel compelled to rub their eyes. Mm -hmm. But uh, one of the hallmarks is fluctuating vision. People find themselves blinking and straining and blinking, trying to pull themselves into focus, and they're doing this because their eyes are covered with dry spots.
1: This will be an unusual question I know to ask and if you can answer it uh mentioned that have you ever had any um, employers come to you with concerns about maybe education for uh, uh, about the eyes uh, at different uh, lo- at locations where there are a lot of people on computers have they have you had any requests for that
2: yet Yes. I've, I've had, um, they're not big companies, but I've had a couple of bosses from medium-sized companies with maybe 50, 60 employees, mm-hmm. and they've had people with problems, and they've called and said, is there anything that, you know, we should tell our, our folks about their computer use? Mm-hmm. And I, yeah. I, one of the things you can do is to try to get your computer, you don't want it straight ahead of you. You want it down 15, 20 degrees so that less of your eyes open. As you look down, 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 your eyes become slit-like. There's very little exposed cornea, so there's less eyeball to get dried out. So put your computer down below your chin or below, you know, at chest level, so that there's less of your eyeball that's open. Every 45 minutes or so, take a little break, you know, get up, walk around, Um, It'll also help relax accommodation, which is when you pull yourself into focus to see a near object, that's called accommodation. That's what sort of starts to fail when you're in your early 40s and you start to get near blur syndrome and you start to need reading glasses. But even when you're young and healthy and you don't have a need for reading glasses yet, about every 45 minutes, get up and stretch and just look at a far distant object and if you're really gunning it hard on a computer, every hour or two, you may want to put in some artificial tears or spray in some nature's tears and keep your eyes refresh and moist. We're
1: refresh. going to take a, a moment with our sponsor, Dr. McDonald, and we'll come back and we'll t- talk about some of the questions we've had with people and their eyes and the computers and other occupations. We'll take a moment for our sponsor, and we'll be right back. <music>
0: All natural, safe, convenient, no preservatives. Nature's Tears Eye Mist can be purchased nationwide at selected eye care professionals and drugstores near you.
2: To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068.
1: Hour, and today we have dr. Marguerite McDonald with us who is one of the most uh, exciting guests I think we've ever could have on your health and your eyes uh, dr. McDonald when we took our moment there we were talking about uh, the computer uh, what about other occupational health hazards that you would like people to learn more about when they're on the job and Uh, Let's say they're in manufacturing, or we even have a truck driver. Uh, Some of the hazards that may be uh, that they haven't even recognized about their health and their uh, and their vision.
2: Well, first of all, um, dryness makes it very difficult for night driving. It's difficult to drive during the day, but the added challenge uh, of dry spots on top of the cornea decreases contrast sensitivity and it causes the visual acuity to drop by two or three lines on the eye chart and sometimes more than that. So say if you're a long-haul truck driver who drives mostly at night and you have dry eyes, you are at significant risk for an accident if yeah, what you do some not of treat
1: symptoms? it. Yeah, what are some
2: of those symptoms that you might? A lot of times people will think, well, I don't feel
1: my eyes. To be dry because a lot of we haven't had a lot of dry eye education. What are some of the symptoms that a, that a person in occupational health would recognize?
2: Burning, uh, redness in the mirror, uh, fluctuating vision, mild itching, the um, the the feeling that you need to rub or press on your eyes. About um,
1: drowsiness.
2: Drowsy? Yes, it can. It's exhausting to have d- dry eyes, and people become tired more easily for sure. Um, Fluctuating vision, I think, is probably the very first one. Um, If people struggle and blink and blink and blink, they see a sign coming at them while they're driving and they've got to blink three or four times to try to pull it into focus. That is uh, almost certainly uh, dry eye. Mm -hmm. Now, have you noticed in your research any anxiety that goes
1: along with that in time? In other words, a person, like you just said, frustrating. Uh, Have you noticed
2: a symptom of more anxiety? Yes, and people find that they're working more slowly. When your eyes are dry and you can't see well, and they're uncomfortable, you're putting out less work. So you'll find since since most pe- everybody gets drier as we get older and women are drier than men because of hormonal changes, I see a lot of women in particular who are anxious because they're not doing as much work. They're putting out less work at the office every day because of their symptoms. Mm-hmm. Also, there's something else. There's a paradoxical excessive tearing that occurs in very dry eye patients mid to late afternoon. Basically, their eyes, they get up in the morning, their eyes are in better shape because they've been closed all night, less evaporation, so they get up and they don't feel all that bad, and then as the day goes on, they get more and more dry spots, and by mid-afternoon, they actually have tiny ulcerations on the top of their eye, and their eyes are injured. Their eyes are finally actually injured from the dry spots, and then suddenly the emergency tears show up, so they have profuse tearing, burning redness, mid to late afternoon, and this passes after mm-hmm. 10 minutes. And then when you tell somebody they've got dry eyes, they say, you must be wrong, doctor, my eyes tear every afternoon. Uh-huh. But that would be confusing.
1: Yes. So the excessive tearing means that your eye is just working as hard as it can, uh, the organ, to try to pull moisture, hold the moisture back,
2: but it doesn't have enough. Exactly. And finally, the eye is injured. And then when the other, see, what we want is for people to have baseline tears. We don't want them to be using their emergency tears. We want them to have a normal, baseline, uh, thick, uh, pristine tear level that will protect their eye from infection and give them better optics. Uh Okay, now we'll get into some of the, uh, we're
1: learning a lot. Uh, let's go to nutrition and uh, what people consider. You know, we're into uh, in, in America and all over the world, concerning ourselves about more about than ever in history about what we're eating, the type of nutrients. Are there some secrets in there about some of the certain nutrients that people should be thinking about for a better health of their
2: eyes? Yes, and of course, since most Americans don't really eat all that well, and we eat on the run too many times. There are fantastic supplements out there for busy Americans. But basically, um, dark, green, leafy vegetables are loaded in general with uh, lutein and zeaxanthin. Mm -hmm. And these are excellent for retinal health. These are thought to protect against macular degeneration. Mm -hmm. And um, also dark fruit, like blueberries, blackberries. So dark, leafy vegetables, dark fruit contain these wonderful things, plus lots of antioxidants, which also help the retina. As far as dry eyes, it has been scientifically proven that if you use, uh, if you have a diet with lots of oil from fish that swim in cold waters, like salmon, Uh uh, that that is very good for your lacrimal gland, and you will produce a thicker, healthier tear-like. Also, flaxseed oil. Uh, there is a really good supplement. Well, there are quite a few out there. The one that's most easily found in most drug stores is TheraTears Nutrition Gel Caps. Okay. Not only has it been scientifically proven to treat dry eyes very successfully, most people enjoy a 30-point drop in their cholesterol as well because all this stuff is also heart-healthy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, But there are many out there. BioTears is another one that's excellent. And um, th- now back for a moment to the green leafy vegetables and the things that are good for your retina. If you do not have a perfect diet, and almost none of us do, you can take um, wonderful ocuvites. Uh, uh, vitamins are not only multivitamins, but they have the extra uh, lutein and zeaxanthin in it. You can buy uh, at any drugstore without a prescription pills that supply your retina with all the good things, and it's right there on the label. Uh-huh.
1: Now, is there one in particular that uh, is a multi, uh, a particular vitamin that they, uh, it says anything on there that this is a multivitamin or nutrient for your
2: eyes for a supplement? Um, one of the a good one is uh, from BioCentrics Macular, okay. Macular Health from BioCentrics. That's excellent. Okay. Okay. Okay, good, good. Now uh, going on to some of the surgeries
1: that are available for people uh, that don't want to wear glasses anymore, uh, and that is one of your expertises. What do you suggest to people that are saying, I don't want to wear my contacts any longer, I don't want to wear my glasses? What are some of the latest surgeries that that have been developed for people to consider?
2: Well, laser vision correction is now in its 20th year, and it has become so sophisticated, so safe and effective. Uh, the latest, I guess, is iLASIK. That's a small I right before the word L-A-S-I-K, LASIK. It's almost like iPod. It has to do with the fact that the intralase laser is used to make the flap, a very thin flap, and then when the flap is lifted off the corneal surface and tilted backward, the eczema laser, the latest and greatest of the s 4 custom-view laser, is used to make the treatment. And the vast majority of people recover instantly. The vast majority of people in the FDA clinical trials had better night vision and better contrast sensitivity after surgery without glasses than they ever had pre-op with glasses. The results are uh, astonishing. The uh, NASA, the American, you know, Na- National Aeronautics Space Administration, just said that their astronauts are approved now to have eye LASIK. They've been hanging back. They're very conservative. They wanted to make sure that these astronauts, you know, most of them um, have cost uh, all of us about forty million by the time these uh, men and women are trained. They are the best and the brightest, and they they didn't want to do or approve anything for them that wasn't a sure thing. So finally they've come out and said, American astronauts can have eye lasik So that's very exciting and it's all customized. It's all based on the same technology that went into building the Hubble telescope, wavefront-based technology.
1: Now what about our troops, our soldiers? uh, Have you
2: heard that there's a lot more of those getting a LASIK Oh yes, Oh yes, many, 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 many of our troops for years now have been getting laser vision correction before they, they go off to war. Uh, That could even be recommended for people that are in heavy manufacturing or construction. It would be uh, ideal for them also. Absolutely. Now, another thing is the um, refractive IOLs, the premier IOLs. You know, a lot of the boomers uh, are finally in a position where they can afford laser vision correction, and they, they come in to see us. And you find that they've got early cataracts, maybe not bad enough yet that insurance would pay for their removal, but bad enough that they will be underwhelmed with the results of their laser surgery because the cataracts are there. Many of them are opting to get their cataracts out early. if you question them, yes, they're starting to get glare when they drive at night, and they're really starting to become symptomatic. But as I said, you know the insurance companies only pay for cataracts to be removed when they're very, very dense so Uh, When the cataracts come out now, we put in an intraocular lens that puts you in focus at distance, intermediate, and near, just like when you were 18. So Hmm. you can see just about anywhere without your reading glasses. It decreases the need for reading glasses or distance Ah. glasses by 90%. You know one' oh, wonderful for manufacturing and certain kinds
1: of labors that oh. people oh. yeah the glasses have always been in the way, and contact lenses are hard to keep clean so this uh, sounds like an ideal now is this, uh, is this kind of
2: surgery uh, covered by insurance no, it isn't. If the oh. cataract is really if if the cataract is not dense enough or ripe enough, if you will, mm-hmm. if it doesn't quite meet insurance criteria. Mm-hmm. then a lot of people are just going ahead and paying for it out of pocket uh because yeah. even if insurance does pay for the cataract part of the procedure um mm-hmm. there is a um a separate fee that's charged for these premium intraocular lenses mm-hmm. that put you in focus at all distances one of the well, best for, ones yeah. one of the very best ones is called the resume iol r e capital z o o m Uh, For our
1: ladies of vanity and all and the squinting, uh, are there any, I know this is not your particular, but are there ocular plastic surgeons, uh, women who squint all the time and their eyes may be healthy or they have had LASIK, but they're still squinting a lot. Are there any recommendations for that? Because it gets a strong,
2: let's call them uh, crow's feed. Are there, is there any secrets about that, Dr. McDonald? Well, for instance, if somebody had LASIK when they were 38 and now they're 47 and they're using reading glasses, they can have one eye touched up. They can have monovision. Monovision is extremely successful. It doesn't work at, in spectacles, but either with uh, contacts or with laser surgery. You can have one eye corrected for distance, one eye for near. It's not bad for your eyes or your brain. Uh, Most of the people currently running for president in both parties are using Monovision to send the subliminal message that they're young and vital, but it's also a convenience thing. You're never asking your spouse to read the menu to you. You're never holding your cell phone up and and saying, Hey, who's calling me? Can somebody tell me who's calling? You know, it's... um, it's it's a huge convenience thing, and, of course, it's a wonderful cosmetic thing as well. Yeah,
1: that's uh, something that and a lot of women are thinking about, and, and men too. I shouldn't say just women. Before we say goodbye to you today, and I'd love to do this again sometime so we can get into some other things, but... I notice our audience are very much into what is best for children and uh, and the growth of our children. And, of course, computers are very concerning today. But you were also affected uh, in your life with what happened in New Orleans with Katrina. Um, and how how are you doing there now? You've moved away, but...
2: <clears throat> well, I <laughs> have, um, my husband still lives and works there. Okay, I had to leave because there weren't enough people there uh, to keep my practice growing. I'm still a clinical professor at Tulane, though. I still have a house there with my husband. I fly back and forth and teach at Tulane. But now I'm an ophthalmic, um, a clinical professor of ophthalmology at NYU School of Medicine in Manhattan. And I also practice with the Ophthalmic Consultants of Long Island in Lindbergh, New York. So I practice up here now. And I'm gratified that many of my New Orleans patients have come up and made a kind of a a little vacation out of it in New York, see if uh, you please get their eyes checked by me, so it's been really nice.
1: Wonderful, and I know you probably like my, uh, you probably love Manhattan. Manhattan's one of my favorite places in the world, and today I'm sitting in Chicago, uh, Dr. McDonald. There, uh, this is the uh, Safety Congress going on with all of our oh, first responders, and uh, we're sitting here that's with everybody down here uh, in Chicago, and you're up there. But I want to thank you for joining us. I think we learned a lot and I hope you'll. I know how busy you are, but I hope on another time you'll think about all the things we haven't been able to discuss, and we could do another show with some more education.
2: I would love that, Sharon. Thank you for the
1: honor. Oh, well, thank you for being with us. You have a nice day. You too. Bye bye now. Bye. was isn't that exciting? Learning more about your eyes. If you don't have your vision, your eyes, your health of your vision, aren't you frightened? I think we should learn more about it. And that is a concern for all of us. I think we'll take a moment for our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Art Bernstein about the world's deepest lakes. We'll be right back.
2: To reach a show host or guest during the live show, dial toll-free in North America, 866-613-1612. Or, if outside the USA and Canada, dial 001-858-268-3068.
1: You're listening to the Sharon Klein Hour, the power of water, your life, global warming, and your health. And we just had Dr. Marguerite McDonald. You learned a lot about today, about uh, your health and your vision of your eyes. And now we're going to learn about the health of the deepest lakes in the world that Art Bernstein has been a special guest of ours on many times. Art, are you with us? Yes, I am. Okay. a week ago or so we talked about Lake Bacal. Right. And uh, you're suggesting today, and I had thought it, how exciting it was to learn more about Lake Baikal and its fresh water. And you had some more that you thought we'd like to learn more about today about some other deeper lakes. I should uh, say yeah, deeper, absolutely deep, deep freshwater lakes. Let's learn more about
3: it. Okay. Well, I have a list of the ten deepest lakes, and Lake Baikal, of course, is the deepest. Mm-hmm. Uh Two of them are saltwater lakes.
1: Now, Lake Bacal is uh, 12,159 feet deep,
3: right? No, it's uh, 12,159 square miles. Square miles, okay. Oh, and the depth, I apologize. All the right, depth, 50, depth 5, is 5,000. Go ahead. Okay, the depth is
1: 5,371 feet.
3: Yeah, But it's exactly. the
1: miles. But they also,
3: uh, uh, that's down to the silt. another four miles Uh below that before you hit the bottom of the canyon. You know,
1: um, Art, when I was talking to Dr. McDonald about our eyes, how important our eyes and our vision, and she had mentioned where the retina uh, provides a connection to the brain. And uh, when you think about our lakes, uh, and the water on the Earth looking at a vision to the rest of the world and how important they all are to uh, Earth, the planet's vision, the universe's vision, and the, yeah. the cleanliness and protecting them at all, making sure they're they're protected. Uh, and they can't do that for themselves as easily. We have to think that way. So we have Lake Batal in Russia. And let's start out. We've said one of uh, one of the programs uh, now Russia is taking care of that lake. They've now decided to protect it
3: uh there's a very large uh paper mill that that dumps effluent into it. Oh okay, uh, it's still dumping effluent. I just can't imagine why anybody would
1: uh, well, they haven't non- learned enough yet, and that's going to be uh, the power of water and global health. Right and warming maybe they we
3: can. 90 percent of the surface freshwater in Russia is in mm-hmm. Lake Baikal okay and I can't yeah. imagine polluting it but you know I mean right uh, I, well, I guess they're working is, more towards cleaning up the uh, the paper mill than they are shutting it down so
1: mm-hmm. okay so they are thinking about it
3: right
1: wonderful and now what make... about your other lakes that you have on your on your list and, and by the way listeners we will post these lakes right uh so you'll have them um now that what's the the second one is um the, the second is africa
3: Right. Yeah, uh lake tanganyika and right below it is lake nyasa lake nyasa is in the same valley mhm um lake tanganyika is the second deepest lake and lake nyasa is the fourth deepest lake mhm and they're both in what's called the east african rift valley mhm mhm so there's a long, skinny uh, canyon that just goes on for, like, 500 miles in East Africa, and it's got these two lakes in it.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, are they taking good care of their water, Their la- the water?
3: Taking- as far as I know, I, I think they are, yeah. Uh, and there's a third lake in it called Lake Albert, mm-hmm. but that's not one of the deepest lakes. And then right nearby is Lake, uh, lake of Victoria, which is the biggest lake in Africa, which is actually very shallow. But the great lakes of Africa are Lake Tanganyika, Lake Nyassa, and Lake Victoria.
1: Uh-huh. So. And now I'm going to ask you did you by and if, it's, if, if this is too early of a question, we can do it another show. When you were researching some of these lakes, did you notice how some of them are depleting and causing a water shortage? Do they, do they provide a lot of water to different? areas of where they're located or um are they just their freestanding in other words that their value to what's going on around the area of the country is it's not as vital yet.
3: Some they're are, some known. aren't. Okay. Um the Great Slave Lake and the Great Bear Lake, uh, these are up in the Northwest Territories and there's not much going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, Crater Lake is a American National Park, that's number seven. Mm-hmm. Tahoe is terribly threatened. That's number eight.
1: Um, now, let's let's stop and think about what does what terribly threatened mean? What's happening?
3: Oh, there's like a half a million people living along the shore, and they have uh, boat rides. And, but they also have uh, tons and tons of laws about what you can do on the shores of uh, Lake Tahoe. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Out of all the ones on the list, I would say Lake Tahoe is by far the most developed.
1: Okay, now let's say they did you say they have a lot of laws?
3: Yeah, the state of California and the oh, state of. all Nevada. these laws
1: that they developed because of all the development of, yeah. the, uh, uh, of the housing and all the tourism and the industry around there. Uh, what is one law?
3: Um, I don't know.
1: <laughs> okay, so you're just aware of the fact that they've had to create yeah, to there's tons a lot
3: of, of new environmental laws okay, and regulations you build and how close to the water you okay. can build and, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's no factories dumping. You know, no, just
1: a lot of houses and tourists. Yeah,
3: lots of sewage, I would imagine, mm-hmm. and they have to keep it going in the other direction.
1: So have you heard anything about what they're doing there as residents to protect it?
3: Um, Not really. Uh-huh. One thing we did talk about before is the Aral Sea, in, uh, which is near the Caspian Sea. Uh-huh. The Caspian Sea is number three on the list of deepest lake. It's three thousand one hundred and four feet deep.
1: But it says one hundred and forty-three thousand miles.
3: Right. It's the I've, a lake. lake it, it, a it,
1: lake that is one hundred and forty-three thousand miles yes, and three thousand one hundred feet
3: deep. Right. It's a lake in that it has no outlet, but it's it's salt water.
1: It's salt water, huh? Yeah,
3: and so is number so what, five.
1: What's the influence of it from where to have it for it to be salt water?
3: Uh, it's a it's a sink. Um, it it has no outlet. So it's one hundred forty-three thousand square miles. It has no outlet, huh. and uh, we have those in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um.
1: So we have saltwater lakes in Oregon.
3: Yeah, you get a lake in the middle of a big desert and um, surrounded by mountains, and water flowing into it, and then it keeps it gets dried up. Uh, the the, you know, the Great Salt Lake mm-hmm. is the same kind of a thing. Uh, okay. mm-hmm. it's a sink. It has no it has no outlet.
1: Yeah, you said it's called a sink.
3: Yeah, a sink is just a, a basin where water flows and collects, and it doesn't go okay. in, it just evaporates.
1: Oh, in other words, the drainages are coming from higher up down to that right. level, yeah. and but, then but when it dries no, up, in other words, whenever it, has it, whenever it dries up, then all of a sudden when the drainage begins at the end, it becomes salty.
3: Right, there's a huge area of the United, western United States called the Great Basin, uh-huh. And in the Great Basin, there's all these little internal drainages that uh, that, that never flow out to the ocean. Uh-huh. They they just stay there, and a lot of them are salty. Uh, uh-huh. What's it called the Humboldt Sink is uh, salty, and uh, the Great Salt Lake is salty, and so it's not surprising that a, a sink, uh-huh. a lake formed in a sink would be would be salty.
1: I see. Yeah. I can understand that. Now, uh, because the show is life, the power of water, and global warming in your health, have you noticed the health of these lakes being affected, not so much because man did anything, but global warming? Have you noticed anything as you're studying that there's an effect there that that was noticeable?
3: Uh, Not that I'm aware of. The one I know best is Crater Lake. There's boy that uh, could affect the lake level though, couldn't it?
1: Oh yeah, it would eventually uh, in time because if you're if the climate is changing and nothing is consistent. In other words, Earth is no different than human life. Consistency is a balance. The balance of your uh, the methods that are being used for you to do what you're doing, whether you be Earth or you be human. I was wondering if there was any, uh, that's something you might look into for us sometime is uh, what is happening there. Uh, It's like I was asking uh, Dave Sitton with Wildlife Images, have you noticed anything with the wildlife yet uh, of their change? Because the climate is changing and we get into our habit of living with the climates of our Earth and our Earth's movements and and change. And he said the only thing they've noticed anything at all is he hadn't thought about it is that the animals are changing their habits, and that's got to be frustrating to some of them because they're so habited. You know, we have habits, and every human merely has habits. So uh, when the or when the weather is changing at different times, would we follow with the weather or would we want to stay with our own habit of how we how we feel about yeah. where we're at at the moment? And weather has a lot to do with it. No, I don't no, think I, people think what, about what it that What I do
3: know way. is, like, the uh, the small high mountain lakes uh, in our area, which there's hundreds of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them are stocked by airplane every year, and the fish can't survive the winter; they all freeze mm-hmm. to death. And uh, I imagine if winters start to get warmer, you'll have more native fish populations, and you know <laughs> whatever the effect of native fish population is on a lake. Uh,
1: we have had uh, a, a, someone with the Fish and Game uh, that would like to talk about that, and that's something that individuals listening uh, anywhere in the world is. When your climate is changing, you're changing your uh, the your wildlife out there are having to deal with that change, and there is an anxiety that could come along with all the planet that uh, with the change and. Um, We don't notice it. It's like a very subtle uh, feeling you may have. uh, Just watch yourself. Learn more about your health. And and this kind of show is exciting because we can learn more about when you're looking at the lake, feel the lake. When you're looking at the mountains, feel the mountains. When you're looking at your weather, the climate, feel the climate. Try to flow with it and not try to uh, be disgrumbled because it isn't going your way. Yeah. Art, Here's is there any the, other little things, that you, anything else that you'd like to mention?
3: I've had a, a big drought about uh, 15 years ago, and it lasted for several years. And, you know, we used to temperature. It didn't rain the whole winter. And temperature went up into the 70s in January, uh, and this lasted for several years. Mm-hmm. And I got to talking to uh, somebody whom you should have on, who was the uh, the, the local forest ecologist who's... Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. One of the most brilliant men I've ever met,
1: uh-huh.
3: and I, I said, "So, when you know, how long does it take before the area where we live, which has all these beautiful uh, Douglas fir trees, you know, when does it start to turn to desert? What would it take for uh, all these beautiful trees to go away, and and you know, just have it be replaced by juniper and uh, much more dry and sagebrush?" Uh-huh. And he said that was a very good question. He didn't have the faintest idea.
1: Uh-huh. So, uh huh. Well, so, well, that's something a good that our show, our show is going to bring up the questions, and yeah. we're not going to be uh, aggressively uh, challenging. We want to learn, so others can learn and bring out some new thinking. Yeah. Well our time is almost all up and uh we will be posting our won't we these lakes so people can come in and be fascinated with Definitely. them. Definitely probably do a little editorial with them. Right. Uh art, right, thank you for being on again and oh, it's uh, my you have well. you have a nice day.
3: Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye.
1: Well, today we've had uh Doctor Marguerite McDonald who is her background is extraordinary and I think you heard that she has had eyesight. Um, problems when she was a young girl and decided to make her mission being an, an ophthalmologist and being dedicated for the rest of her life. We've had Art Bernstein on many times who his mission has been writing natural books, nature books, and he's a master's degree in anthropology and forestry. Um, we want to thank you for listening with my dedication and my commitment because I want you to learn more about how you feel. And I want you to know that you are important to me, and you are important to yourself, and you are important to everyone. This, year, uh, this planet has 1.1 billion people lacking water. 6,000 children die a day because of the lack of water. I hope you're drinking your water every day, up to 10 and 12 glasses, not just bottles. Pour it into a glass. Drink your water. Take it important because you have 50 trillion cells. You've got to keep nourished. I want to thank you for being here today. Earth has a secret. Embrace your life every precious moment. Earth whispering, never say goodbye. Thank you for listening. Have a nice day.